someone challenged me and said, well, look, if you know, you clearly you're not a fan of solid, what would you replace it with? And, and that led me to, uh, you know, are, are there a set of principles? Is there a universally applicable set of principles to software or is it just such a vast field that that doesn't make any sense? From Toro Cloud, this is the Coding Over Cocktails podcast, a free pool of thoughts, ideas, and advice from IT experts, innovators, and thought leaders exploring the world of digital transformation, APIs, microservices, cloud adoption, and more. Welcome to episode 67 of the Coding Over Cocktails podcast. My name is Kevin Montalbo. And joining us from Sydney, Australia is Toro Cloud CEO and founder, David Brown. Good day, David. Hi there, Kevin. Hello. All right, let me introduce our guest for today, who helps business and technology leaders find simple, pragmatic solutions to business and technical problems, often using lean and agile techniques. He has 30 years of experience in IT and is a frequent speaker at technology and business conferences worldwide. The originator of behavior-driven development and deliberate discovery, he has published feature articles in numerous software and business applications and contributed to the RSpec book, Behavior-Driven Development with RSpec Cucumber and Friends, and 97 Things Every Programmer Should Know, Collective Wisdom from the Experts. Joining us today for a round of cocktails is Daniel Terhurst-North. Hi, Dan. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you very much for having me. By the joy of time zones, it is it is morning here. So unfortunately, I won't be. I'll, I'll be doing the coding over. When I heard coding over cocktails, I was thinking, is that like one of the you know the, the, the fifth agile ma- agile value manifest and new manifest? What, what, whilst, <laughs> well, whilst we whilst we value cocktails. <laughs> well, Australian company, it's a, so it's, a, it's Toro's manifest. We we always kick off, well, we always end the week with beer o'clock. It's a tra- tradition. So yeah, we don't want to promote alcoholism. Alcoholism. <laughs> we can't wrap my head around it. Um, but yeah, it's, there is a bit of an ongoing thing there, and of course, all our product name uh, after cocktails as well. So. Uh, we have Italian cocktails as all our product names. But look, Dan, you, I want to start off with Solid. Now, you have a problem with Solid, which is interesting. <laughs> so I think we should first all cover off what is Solid. So the Solid principles were introduced by Michael Feathers, who built upon the work of Robert Martin in his paper, Design Principles and Design Public, uh, Patterns published back in 2000. Now, that, that those solid principles have served us well for over 20 years in terms of object-orientated programming. Uh, you are now challenging these principles. Uh, before we get into your alternative, uh, maybe you can run us through what is solid and what's your problem with it. So uh, the phrase served us well is an interesting one. They've been around for a long time, certainly. Um, I've, as you said, I've been writing software for 30 years. Um, like as a full-time hands-on programmer for the first 20 of those, for the last 10 or so, I've been a consultant. So I, I'm a cause of programming in other people. Um, I still code when I can. I, I love programming. Um, these days, I tend to do a lot more looking at reviewing code, um, looking at uh, programming strategy, architecture strategy, that kind of thing. So helping teams write better software. So Solid, Solid's an interesting, I think of Solid as a useful historical artifact. Okay. Um, when the, when uh, Robert Martin was produced, was describing all these principles, he was collecting things. You know, he wasn't just sitting there and pronoun- making pronouncements. These are things that he'd seen in the wild and he thought they were useful things to bring together. So there was, a, there was a, a good intent behind it. But some things stand the test of time and some things don't. And a test-driven development we're going to talk about later is I came across that 
over 20 years ago. It was decades old by the time I came across it. It's still completely relevant today. It's one of the most useful software design techniques I've ever encountered. Um, solid, not so much. So if you look at each of the five principles, you can see, and this is what I did. I wrote an article before, you know, before, before any of the Cupid work. I wrote an article kind of um, deconstructing, if you like, that just, just solid, and solid is only five principles. Now there are over a hundred of these things in his, in his book. Um, and as you say, Mike Feathers happened to notice that the, uh, that the first five, if you change the order a bit, you could get this acronym SOLID. Uh, you could also get Lloyd's and uh, <laughs> and Doyle's as well. So, I mean, you know, idols. Oh, there you go, idols. So you can look at them as idols, and perhaps that makes me an iconoclast. I don't know. But the problem I have with them is, let's look at them one by one. A single responsibility principle says code should, uh, code should uh, have one reason to change. That's the technical definition. So, in other words, you shouldn't... Uh, you shouldn't confuse, you shouldn't conflate different aspects of code. You shouldn't have things like business logic in with view logic or data access logic in with business logic. And, you know, that kind of makes sense, right? You think, oh, that, that, yeah, that seems like a pretty good rule for life, right? And it kind of makes sense in an age when uh, making change to any code was a high transaction cost activity. So I would change. I was working on big C++ systems, you know, multi-million lines of C++ systems in the 90s. I, I wrote a, uh, a Europe-wide um, telecom um, billing platform, which was fun, lots of multi-currency and, and fun, fun edge cases, like you had to have one bill per customer. But one of the customers was First Telecom, which itself was a reseller. And so it might have tens of millions of call records in a month. And the system, the original system wasn't designed for that. So I, I was working on big systems and especially C++ is it's become a much bigger, more complicated language. At that time, it was it was a pretty reasonable language for doing those kind of systems. Um, this is before Java. You, you, you'd make your change in your code and compiling was pretty quick. You know, I could, write, I could write some C++ code and then run make and then the compiling stage was, you know, a few minutes. The, there's then a stage called linking and linking is where uh, a linker resolves all of the various bits of your code and make sure they all connect to each other. That could take literally hours. So in other words, a one-line change could take, you could have a multi-hour build. Not not building and running tests, we weren't doing automated testing much then. Just getting a binary <laughs> you can run was a multi-hour endeavor. And when the transaction cost is high, what you tend to do is do more work. So, I, so you, you make bigger changes because if the cost of a change is high, then you 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 know you shove in a load of stuff. You don't want to keep doing that every you know right every few lines of code. And so that meant that you then have an exponentially higher uh, likelihood of introducing bugs. So this is the context you're working in. And so what they're saying is, look, if you're doing changes to business logic for crying out loud, don't make changes to the U, to the view at the same time. Don't put them in the same code because that's just going to be a nightmare. If you play that forward to now. Uh, we have like the equivalent language to something like C++, which is your you know, business systems language, is Java or C Sharp or maybe Go sometimes these days. Rust is coming up. But like for a language like Java or C, or C Sharp, I'm in my IDE. I'm typing. The program is compiling behind my fingertips in real time. I've got hot reloading of apps, right? So my transaction cost for making a change is nil. So that's the first change. The second change is that code itself is a lot more malleable. And I think Java was the language that made this mainstream. Small talk is where it started. It's the idea of refactoring. So in if I'm writing C or C++, it's it's kind of like bricklaying, right? So you you write you write a file, something.c, and then you you're done with that file, and you get the next file, something.c or something.cpp uh, or whatever it is. Um, and and you write the files and you park them. Okay. And so the you wouldn't generally go back and make a change to a file. Or if you did, you were making a change within that file. 
And so the prevalent uh, version control system, for instance, CVS at the time, if you renamed a file, you lost all the history because the history was file-based. So if you renamed a file in CVS, you just lost all the, all, all of its change history. Um, that wasn't a bug in CVS. That's just like a, a, um, a consequence of how uncommon that action was. And now Java comes along and Java couples the name of a class to the name of a file and the name of a package to an entire directory structure, right? So now suddenly when you have refactoring tools in Java, changing file names and changing entire directory hierarchies is common. It becomes a single keystroke, yeah? And so suddenly tools like CVS are breaking, and that's where Subversion came from. It was uh, the next generation of CVS that was that was refactoring aware. That was the big thing it did, is a change, you know, the, the, the change was a, a change of a bunch of files was atomic instead of per file. And we play that forward and we get tools like Git. So the the mindset that change, the code would only change in one place just became nonsense. Code, code changes all over the place. And also the tools for navigating code became much, much richer. Right. So instead of using VI or Emacs or whatever you're using for your, for editing your C++ code, which had pretty good code navigation, there's a brilliant thing it called C tags that they would both use that would allow you to navigate code. But like in, in, um, IntelliJ, I can just do find usages across a file with, across a code base with hundreds of thousands or millions of files in it. And it goes, yeah, here they are. Right. Here they are. And I can guarantee there's no false positives because I can build a, a, a deterministic AST from my code. Right. So there's the whole context. So now let's take a look at single responsibility. When I first start writing a new piece of code in, in some language, in Python, in Rust, in Go, in whatever it is, why do I want an arbitrary separation of all the bits that are changing together because they're in my head right now? The, the UI doesn't change on its own apart from for trivial UI changes. If you're going to make that button blue, that's a UI change right? Usually a UI changes because I've added some more information or I've changed the information. And I changed the information in the business layer. So that means that changed in correspondence with that. And that probably changed because there was some data change or some event change. And so actually all these things do change together. And so now what I've got is a bookkeeping exercise, right? Where I have to go, you know, I've got the guest to set, to get to set, to get to set, to get to set. If you ever did any enterprise Java back in the day, most of your life was copying and pasting code between getters and setters, right? This is madness. Except then you get Rails, right? And Rails has the same thing. You have models and views and controllers and in separate directories because that's what single responsibility says is that they have to, it doesn't say they have to live in separate places, but that's what software craftsmen do is they, 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 they take these things to the nth degree. Um, and, and now, and now we're stuck with this model where in order to make a change to code, I have to go ferreting around in all different files. I've never done that. I've managed to get by 30 years without using single responsibility principle. So it's, you know, again, I describe it as neither necessary nor sufficient. If you do it, I mean, might, maybe the, the other thing, I'll, and I'll shut up because I know we've got a lot more wearing on S. Uh, the, the other thing to bear in mind is you can think of it as a premature optimization of code structure. So if I, if I, if, if I am, um, duty bound, honor bound to separate, uh, my, my code into areas that only have one reason to change, that means that I'm not allowing myself other things, right? So for instance, what I might have is a bunch of code that's to do with billing and a bunch of code that's to do with customer management and a bunch of code that's to do with, um, uh, you know, with buying or something, whatever my product is, a bunch of things that are to do with search. And, and those areas of functionality, that might be a much more sensible way to arrange my code. But I, I don't get to do that because I'm already in models and views and controllers is my top level view of the world. 
Well, I might ask you, you're going, I mean, you came up with a, a new acronym called CUPID as your alternative to SOLID. So as you're going through these SOLID principles and you're talking about the single responsibility principle of SOLID at the moment, maybe you can run us through the CUPID alternative uh, and, and how it res- resolves these issues you have with SOLID. So that, that's a great question. I'm going to counter with something a little different. So I thought, so, so okay, so originally, here, here's the backstory. I, I just poached the bear of solid in a fun talk about five years ago. It was a literally a five-minute talk in a pub um, with alcohol. Again, you know, drink, drink, drink aware, folks. And there were a whole series of these Ignite fun, silly talks. And it was a post-conference event. And I thought I'd poke at solid. And, and I did. It was a five-minute talk. So for each, um, each of the five principles, I gave 15 seconds describing it, 15 seconds describing why I don't like it, and 15 seconds saying what I would do instead, thinking I would have exactly the answer to your question. And as I wrote the talk, I realized that the thing I would do instead was the same thing every time, which is write simple code. Now, clearly, write simple code is itself a bit vague. So I needed to clarify what I meant by simple and... My, my working definition of simple is it's not about my head. It's code that fits in someone else's head. So someone else, you, uh, Kevin, can come along, see this code and go, yeah, I get what's going on here. And my qualifications for that person's head is that they understand the language, the idiomatic code in that style of language. So they don't, you know, they're not going to come, I'm not going to take someone who's never seen Go code before and say, what does this do? So so the idea is that someone who's familiar with the the language, its ecosystem, its core libraries, its runtime, you know, its build, its build chain, uh, tool chain. So given those things and, and also some familiarity with the domain that we're working in. So if you have all those things and you can look at some code and it's obvious to you, then that's simple. If it's not obvious to you, it means that there's some tacit knowledge that's in Kevin's head that's about how this module connects to that other module because you have to know about this other secret module over here, right? That's now not obvious. So how do we, how do we make that tacit knowledge explicit? And it turned out for each of these five, basically my go-to was write simple code. So some years later, so this is where Cupid came from. Someone challenged me and said, well, look, if you know, you clearly, you're not a fan of solid. What would you replace it with? And, and that led me to, you know, are, are there a set of principles? Is there a universally applicable set of principles to software? Or is it just such a vast field that that doesn't make any sense? And, and I got to thinking about it and I ended up with properties. I said, I, I wouldn't describe any principles as universal. They're all contextual. But there are properties of code that I think make it joyful to work with, that make it make coding fun. You know, I've been into code bases. I've been super lucky in my 30 years. I've been into code bases more than once not often, but more than once, and just smiled. You know, you look at the code and you're like, I get this, and I'm about to have fun, right? I'm about to make a change here, and I know I'm going to do it confidently. I know I'm going to not mess things up because someone else who came before me put this together in such a way that it just couldn't be more self-explanatory, couldn't be more intention-revealing. And it's, oh, mate, when you get that, <laughs> you don't ever want to, A, you don't ever want to not have that, and also, it makes you super careful. Like when you're in there, I don't, I, I want to leave it like this. I don't want to come to someone's gorgeous house and then just trash it and then go. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. they've set a benchmark. So what are the properties of those, of those five properties of Cupid? Well, and so this is what, and so, and so, so then my, so my counter is this, is that I don't have a one-to-one correspondence with solid because I think individually each of them is silly. <laughs> each of them is, is again, neither necessary nor sufficient. Um, usefully, useful at a time, right? In the mid nineties, which is yeah, a generation ago, they, they were good, they were good sound advice, but they haven't aged well. So, so what would I describe instead? Uh, so, so I describe properties of code. So very briefly, Cupid is a backronym. So I started with a word and then added 
and then, and then, then assigned properties, um, which is great fun because, um, and it was deliberate as well. You know, Cupid is like the, 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 you know, is, um, the God of love and, and it's about, you know, joy and romance and stuff. And it's like the opposite of the kind of bro culture around software craftsmanship and solid and all of that. So I wanted something deliberately controversial. And, and it also means that you get to have candidates. Like there's loads of things that begin with C. I'm going to write, actually, I've got it in my head, I'm going to write a series of articles of the runners-up. <laughs> like I, there were loads of I, and I ended up with idiomatic, but there were, there were several for I. That, and then what I discovered delightfully as an accidental consequence is that all of the runners-up you can derive from the five that made it. So the five that made it are kind of foundational, and then any, and anything else you can say, well, because of these things, you're going to necessarily get that. So briefly. You're a huge Wordle player. I, I'm not. No, I, I've <laughs> never played Wordle. I've seen it. I, I've just, I've never been inclined to play okay. Wordle. I, I have plenty of Wordle on my Twitter time straight, on my, on my Twitter timeline, but I, I, I don't actually play. So, uh, C, um, is composable. So this is the idea, you know, the, the kind of the principle of comparing, preferring composition over inheritance. But the, the idea with all of these, of these properties is it's not at a line of code, just at a line of code level. So the idea is that all of them are fractal. So I want composable code. I want composable functions or methods. I want composable classes or objects. And, but then I want composable modules and I want composable subsystems. So when you're designing APIs, there's composability there. When you are, uh, thinking about how, uh, how you're going to build your code, there's composability. So for instance, one of the aspects of composability is dependencies. Right. So if you give me a lovely, lovely API, and it drags in half the internet through Maven, right? I'm much less likely to use it. So composability in, requires you to think small, requires you to be very, very discerning about what dependencies you absolutely need and what you can't roll your own. U is Unix philosophy, which is do one thing and do it well, uh, which kind of sounds a bit like single responsibility, except, except um, very deliberately, um, the Cupid properties are, are in the eye of the beholder, right? Beauty is in, joy is in the eye of the beholder. So this is, it does one thing for you as a consumer, whereas the solid principles are from the perspective of the code. So it has one reason to change. Yeah. So it may, it may do one thing and have one reason to change. But if I need to, if I, if from a consumer perspective, um, that lump of business logic is no use without the view on it and without the data on it. So that, that is do one thing. <laughs> so I, I, so, so, so with the component piece, with the be composable and do one thing, you've basically got Unix. So all of the Unix shell commands, you know, the, the, the kind of core commands, they're all about composability and they're all about doing one thing well. So, Cat gives me contents of files. Wget or curl gives me contents of, of web pages, um, etc. Uh, and then from, from that content, I can then filter that content using grep. I can then transform that content using sed or awk. I can then, um, so, and, and so you can compare, and then I can filter out what's left using, um, uh, uh, unique, for instance, or sort. So, um, so just having really simple primitives for text processing, I can build very sophisticated pipelines because everything is composable and each thing does one thing really comprehensively. So that's the U. P is about predictability. So predictable is uh, the way I'm describing it is it's a generalization of testable. Right. So Mike Feathers, um, his, his lovely book, uh, working effectively with legacy code, he describes legacy as anything without tests. So, uh, I, I, I went broader than that because I've seen, I've seen legacy code bases without tests that were joyful. 
that were brilliant to work in. And I've also seen entirely test-driven code bases that were an absolute rat's nest. And I wouldn't want to do work in them. Um, so, so again, having full test coverage, which we'll get onto later, is neither necessary nor sufficient. Um, but yeah, so, uh, so predictable is, is I know what it does. I can tell by looking at it what it does. So it's about intention revealing. It's about, um, it does what you think it will do. So code that does what you think it will do. And also that it's easy to determine that it does what you think it will do. And that's not necessarily with automated tests. You know, it may be, uh, through some kind of checker. It may be by running it. It may be by putting, um, uh, by looking at it. But if I can make code that is easy to instrument, right, that has its own telemetry, that tells me when things are wrong, that, that fails in a well-known way. So, so predictable code isn't just about that it follows the happy path every time. It's that when it fails, it's, it fails in, in well-known ways. And, and we often don't think about that. So does it fail silently? Does it fail silently and corrupt data? Does it fail catastrophically? Right. You know, oh, and I need to know this. And this allows me then to use your API. So that's the P. I is idiomatic. And this is a really big deal. Idiomatic means you write code like everyone else would write code. So it's a, a lot about egoless programming, right? If I go into a code base and I can see that this is David's code and I can see that this is uh, Kevin's code, then, you know, props to you for having your own style, but it means that now I've got more cognitive load. I've got to not only think about the, the, the pricing algorithm problem I'm trying to solve, I've also got to think about how David would have coded this and where he might have put this and his weird naming convention for stuff and his penchant for a different testing library from everyone else, right? And all those lovely idiomatic, all those lovely personal quirks. So idiomatic code says, write code like everyone else. If the language itself has an idiomatic style, Clojure is a massively idiomatic language. You know, the Clojureans, they all write code that looks the same. They all write this lovely, lispy style of code. And you can tell when someone's new to Clojure because they're trying to write imperative kind of um, uh, procedural code in a lovely, functional, listy language. And it takes a while to get there. Likewise, Go has Go format, which takes all of your syntax highlight, uh, syntax discussions off the table. It also has a massive standard library where everything looks the same, right? And all, I, I hate the naming conventions. Something that does reading and writing is called a reader writer. You're like, really? That's the best you could do? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and something that does reading and writing and printing, guess what that's called, right? Write a printer. But then, the, yeah, how about that? And then, but then what happens is this, is as you look through the core library, if you've done anything with the HTTP library, You've written some HTTP code and then you go to use the FTP library. Man is familiar. It's like I've already been here because whoever designed the FTP library made it look just the same as the HTTP library and all the errors fail in the same way. And then you look at the SMTP library and guess what, right? Any network protocol libraries have all been designed with a similar flavor. And so what they have, they bake that idiomaticness, idiomaticity. Anyway, they bake that into the language and into all of the example code. And along with that, you get this effective Go, which is a beautiful document that says, here's how we write Go around here. I'm not advocating for Go. I think it's a really ugly language. It's very good for a very, for a small subset of things. But boy, are they idiomatic, right? Because they know how many, uh, developer hours, days, millennia have been lost to pointless arguments about style. Right? And how many really subtle bugs have come in because I thought I was in some of Kevin's code and actually I'm in some of David's code and he does error handling differently and my thing just silently failed. Right. So 
So then it's layered, right? So you have idiomatic what the what the community does, then idiomatic what we do around here, like in this organization, and then idiomatic how our team writes code. And if you kind of layer those things on, it's pretty hard to write code that doesn't look like the other kids, right? But if you don't set those standards, you know, if you don't make those uh, set those uh, lines in the sand when you start, you just end up with ten different styles of code, and it makes change, it makes change much harder and much less joyful. D, the last one, domain based. Which is, and again, this goes right back to the the solid, the um, the S conversation we we're having earlier, single responsibility conversation. I'm a massive fan of domain driven design. Domain driven design was one of the core ingredients to BDD back in the day, in the 2003 or something. Um, and I'm a huge fan of Eric Evans. I think he's a, a, a giant in our industry. Um, his so domain driven design is the idea that writing software to solve business problems isn't the point. Right. Understanding the domain and solving problems in that domain is the point. And writing software is like a useful byproduct of that. Right? <laughs> so, you know, I'm trying to understand. So his, his background is, um, uh, shipping. So logistics. And so what he does is he spends ages and ages working with people, understanding what they mean by a manifest, what they mean by moving cargo around, what they mean by um, bonded warehouse and what all the, and all the business rules that flow from that and how we do work. And just software just kind of seems to appear while he's having these conversations. Right? But the names in the code represent things like, you know, if you've got a bonded warehouse, there'll be a bonded warehouse thing in the code. But you can't not know that this code is about bonded warehouses or this code is about derivative pricing or this code is about, uh, patient healthcare management. But because it just says it, you haven't got int i, you know, you've got, uh, int patient id or something and you can't not know. And so anyway, strong domain naming is just again another way of reducing cognitive load. But then what I talk about is domain structure as well. And this goes right back to things like Rails um, and all these kind of frameworks that have like views here, controllers here, models here, helpers here, managers here, whatever it is. And like, I don't care about all that. I mean, I know I'll need those things, but what I want at the top level is patient management, right? Um, order booking. Like I want my broad bounded context, my broad subdomains at the top of my code base. And within those, then the subdomains in there. And yeah, there'll be models and views and controllers in there, but I'm an adult and I can find them. <laughs> so I don't want you I want to see the framework. I want to see the, the, the solution. Dan, you, you briefly mentioned there that uh, BDD, which is uh, behavior-driven development when you're talking about yes. domain-driven design, uh, you developed de- behavior-driven development as a response to the confusion and misunderstandings, in your uh, own words, from various agile processes such as test-driven development. So, Ranis, I'd like you to dive into, if you may, behavior-driven development. What does that mean and what, what, are you, what was it developed in response to? It's interesting. I think with 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 a lot of these techniques, particularly with and TDD is a real a, a really good example. Um, there there are there are there are several others as well where you get a I think a genuinely game changing technique that gets let down by a poor name. Okay, Kent Beck is um, is an amazing programmer. You know, he really is an amazing programmer. Um, he isn't great at naming things, or rather, there are better names, and and so. So test-driven development suggests that there's tests, right? And he said, and he actually, when he describes it, he says, right, we're going to start with a test. Right, we're going to start with a failing test. And I started doing this. I picked this up around late 90s again, so 20-something years ago. And I was fascinated by this. So you, you write code for code that doesn't exist yet. 
So yeah, so what we do, it's like a model client. You're like you're writing a model client for some code that doesn't exist. Let, let's I'll tell you, let's take an example. We're going to go and get some. You and I, we're going to go and get some code out of a database. Okay. So ready? Sleeves up. We're going to go. We're going to go get some code out of a database. Let's you. Let's write an API for that. So let's see. The API could be um, connect a database, uh, run a query, close a connection. Right. That's the three things we need to do. Okay, and then we go, right, so let's write a client for that. Uh, and our client would be um, connect a database, run a query, close a connection. Uh, and you look at me and you go, you know what's going to happen here, Daniel, don't you? Like, what's that? They're going to forget to close the connection. Oh, uh, yeah, no, you're right, you're right. Okay, try, open database, run query, finally close connection. Okay, yeah, that's, that's yeah, okay, I'm happy with that, fine. Uh, what about if the connect fails? What kind of failure we're going to have? Okay, and so what we're doing is we're now designing the API. Right, we're designing the API to try, and then you look at me and you go, "Who else? Who else in our world is ever going to do try finally?" And we look at each other and we go, "Like no one." Right. So, <laughs> what if we put that behind the API? And what if we just had run query as the entire API? And in our implementation of run query, we're going to do that try finally thing. So it's a bit more work for us, much easier to use. So we've just had a design discussion in writing a model client. We've taken a model client from three lines of code and a complicated construct to one line, right? Go us. Because hopefully many more people are going to use our code than they're going to write it in the first place. Yeah. So what we've just done is simplified the API. That's test-driven development. Did you hear me use the word test in there at all? No, because I'm writing a model client. I'm not writing a test, right? Now, it turns out that if I use this model client, to then exercise the thing I built, and I can maybe put some assertions in there about how I think it should behave, then it becomes a test. So this is the, and this is the linguistic shift, is that your model clients, your code examples, become a test after they were useful. Right? <laughs> right? I wrote the code to design the API. That was the value. I then get this handy byproduct that I can run it in the future and see that it still works. Score. The problem is all the spotlight went on the second bit and not on the first bit, including in Kent's head where he talks about it's a test. It's not a test, it's a model client. Even if you're Kent Beck, you're still writing a model client, right? And so as an experiment, this is 2003, I remember vividly, I remember the team I was on, and I was trying to pitch TDD to them. I was like, it's the best way to write software, it's brilliant, you end up with really good design, I've been doing it for years, it's awesome, and they're like, no, we're programmers, we don't write tests, we have testers to write tests. And this is very much the culture of, you know, testers are cheap programmers or, you know, they're, they're the people who aren't good enough to be programmers, that kind of mindset. And I was like, but it's not really a test. Well, you called it a test. It's called test driven development. You said we're going to write a test. It's like, oh, crap. Uh, <laughs> how else do I do this? Meanwhile, the testers got wind of this and they're like, are you getting the programmers to write tests? I was like, kind of. And they said, that's our job. And it was partly like a fear of losing their job, but it was also, we know these programmers and they're rubbish at writing tests, let me tell you. <laughs> And so I thought, well, how could I describe this differently? And, and so I said, right, I'm not going to use the word test. I'm going to talk about behavior. I'm going to say, we are going to describe the behavior of the code before we write the code. It's like in a spec. You'd write a functional spec, right? And in the functional spec, you'd say, this is our expected inputs and outputs. I say, yes. So we're going to call it specification. So we're going to write an executable specification. And that executable specification will document the expected behavior of our code. Right. So, and, and, and here this, this became the cell. If you do this, David, you don't have to write a functional spec. Right. Shut up and take my money. <laughs> <laughs> Either do TDD with Dan or you can write a functional spec. 
Where, where's Dan? <laughs> <laughs> and so now people start, and then suddenly all the adoption questions went away. You know, yeah, let's do it because what we're doing, we're writing behavior ahead of time. And then, oh, by the way, kids, as a cool side effect, these things make pretty handy tests. So that, and that was where BDD came from. It was an attempt to reframe TDD. So I don't have a beef with TDD. I love TDD. I still think it's the most powerful model I've ever come across, technique I've ever come across for design in the small. It doesn't give you design in the large. You still need to have a, a, a picture of your architecture that you're growing into. You need to make some decisions about, are we event-driven? Are we three-tier? Are we client-server? Are we message-based? What, what, sort of, what sort of thing are we building? But in the small, when I'm building this piece of it, TDD is absolutely a brilliant way to come up with good design, especially with pair programming. They work so well together. So you and I sit down, and we had that conversation in real time about that database API, and we smashed it. Right? We put all the error handling where it should be. Now that it's a single method call, by the way, and we are owning the try finally, we can also do things like connection pooling. That's cool. Right? We just got that for free because right? <laughs> we put that behind the API. And all of that came out of, will anyone else ever do try finally? And you looked at me and you went, no, Dan, they won't. <laughs> Let's do that for them. So it's a brilliant design technique. So, so there we are then with BDD. And then... Uh, and I remember this vividly as well. In 2004, I was talking to a business analyst buddy at ThoughtWorks um, called Chris Matz. And, I, and he said, oh, what's this BDD thing then? Because I've been hearing this, you know, going around ThoughtWorks about BDD. And I said, oh, basically, you describe the behavior you want in terms of an automated way. And then you implement the behavior. And then you check that what you got is what you wanted. And he looks at me and he said, you know, you just describe business analysis. What do you mean? So, well, business analysis, you describe what you want, you write some software, and then you check that it does what it's supposed to. And we both just went, oh, right. <laughs> maybe this works at multiple levels, right? Maybe we could use this BDD model to describe behavior. And we had, there was a, there was a, an index card kind of template going around ThoughtWorks at the time. It's a lovely guy, Ivan Moore. And what do you write on an index card? You write your stories on an index card because you're old school. And if, you, if it doesn't fit on like a five by three inch index card, then it's too big. You need to write less words. Yeah. Write fewer words. So and on the back of the index card, he, did a, he wrote a line down it. And it's two headings. I do this. This happens. Right. I do this. This happens. And that was his acceptance test. Right. And so you go, I do this. Uh, log in with a password. This happens. I see the landing page. Uh, bad password. I, this happens. Uh, error message. Bad password three times. This happens. Locked out. Right. So really simple way to capture exceptions criteria. So Chris looks at this and he goes, yeah, that's not going to work. So what do you mean? He said, well, I do this. He said, any number of things could happen. Depends on the context, doesn't it? Said, uh, like, uh, let's say you log in with a correct password. Yeah. And the system's down. Do you get in? No. <laughs> <laughs> you get a 501, don't you? Nothing to do with you. I was like, oh, whoa. You're right. And so he added a third column at the beginning, which is context. And that's where given, when, then came from. So given some context, when I do this, then this happens. And so now we have this like really lightweight template, if you like, for capturing those um, examples. So now at a code level, we could, and I still to this day, 20 odd years later, I still to this day when I'm writing, uh, so I do, or if I write any BDD at all these days, I use things like PyTest or JUnit, you know, real simple, what we would think of as unit testing framework. 
there's a very few times I will reach for something like cucumber. It, it has its place. The plain text runners have their place, but it's much, much smaller space than you'd think. Anyway, that's a whole other conversation. Um, so, uh, yeah, so I still try to, you know, given when then. So I go hash given, hash then, hash when, hash then, or slash, slash given, slash, hash when, slash, hash then. And then I start writing my example, my model client. And, and I iterate from there. And so, uh, Chris and I kind of buddied up. And we had this thing called behavior and development. We started talking about it at conferences. So, so my beef with TDD has never been with TDD. I love TDD. I heart, I heart <laughs> TDD. Um, the, I'm not obsessive about it. It has a place. And the other big risk with TDD, and I wrote a big article about this last year. I don't write that many articles, but I had a thing going in my head for literally years that finally came out. Um, is that it's still 20 something, 30 something years on is still nothing to do with testing. And what I mean by that is this. Let's say you and I pair on something and we do TDD and we end up with a bunch of code examples and we say, right, we've got tests now. So let's look at those tests. Those tests were the smallest number of model clients that triangulated on our answer. So we probably just started with one to get the basic API. And then we're going to try one that's going to test maybe some error conditions or something. And maybe one that's going to put in some bad input, right? And we go, right, are we confident that what we've built is probably robust? And we go, yep, I'm down the pub or out for coffee. Yeah. Um, if you're a tester looking at that, you're just going to break out in hives. <laughs> just gonna, that's not tested. No, it's not. It's minimal viable assurance that you probably haven't messed it up too badly, but it's not testing. So I could take that test, I could take one of the tests that puts a value in, and I could write a generative test based on that that puts in hundreds of millions of values and just keeps them running all the time. And every now and then it bips because it finds a failure mode. And it turns out that if you have a very, very small negative number close to zero uh, due to some floating point quirks in the Java library, that it breaks our pricing. Right? Neither of us would ever have thought of that. Luckily, we're just slamming it with random numbers and one of them broke. When it breaks, we can figure out why, but we're unlikely to break it, right? That's testing. <laughs> assuming, assuming that it might break. I'm going to have to uh, cut you short, Dan, because... Please do. I'm sorry. I'm going to ramble about Well, I think this is our longest podcast, and you warned us beforehand that you, <laughs> you had plenty of material on, on this subject, <laughs> <laughs> and you were right, because I haven't even asked you half the questions I had written down to ask you. But I, I am interested in well, one happy thing. to come back another time. I, I think so. <laughs> I am interested in one thing before we wrap up is is what has been the community's response uh to uh cupid and bdd you know that did you get get a lot of flack did you get accolades you know what what has been the response that's a brilliant question i think with bdd it was i was amazed i was amazed at the adoption of bdd for me it was i, I never meant it to be a thing right it was it was genuinely a uh, a coaching hack. It was I was I was convinced that this team would benefit from TDD, and I was convinced that the pushback I was getting about testing was totally irrelevant. But I couldn't convince them it was irrelevant, so I just started over. I said, oh, "We're not going to do that thing. We're not going to do TDD. What we're going to do instead is write an executable spec." And and then and then it, but then there was a ThoughtWorks. This is back in the early days of ThoughtWorks was 
we had these things called away dates, you know, and the whole company would get together and do stuff and give talks. And I gave a talk about it. And this wonderful lady, Liz Keogh, um, got very excited about it and said, right, how do I turn this into a thing? And, and it kind of went sort of viral within ThoughtWorks. People started finding that this technique was a great way for them to introduce TDD as well. And then suddenly the world picked it up and I had no plan, plan that was going to happen. And then sometime later, um, in the Ruby community, especially, um, some folks that aren't me, some folks wrote a thing called RSpec, which was like a BDD style, like a given when then structuring for Ruby. And, and I was writing something in Ruby and I wanted something at a higher level than RSpec. RSpec's a code level thing. And I wanted like a, a given when then thing. So I wrote a given when then thing and I called it, um, our behave. And then the RSpec folks, which is David Chlimsky, Aslak Hellasoy, some other folks, folded that into RSpec. And then Aslak went and basically rewrote it as Cucumber. And this thing just exploded, right? So Cucumber suddenly became I think, one of the most downloaded software products of all time or something. And, and so no one knew this was going to happen. And then I think my head finally exploded when uh, it had its own conference. Wow. Right. So PDD yeah. got its own conference. I was like, wow. Cupid has been much more deliberate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I've given <laughs> keynotes at my own, at my own things. And there was a lovely phrase I learned many years ago that I try and live by, which is if you, if you want an idea to travel a long way, don't try and travel with it. And I've never tried to be the BDD person, right? The BDD community is rich, exciting, vibrant, creative, and way, way, way bigger than me. And that delights me. But Cupid is much more deliberate. Cupid is right. Well, look, you know what? I'm going to do something here. I'm going to talk about this thing. I've been, I've spoken about it at conferences. I've written this article, um, which appeared on Hacker News. Um, in fact, the backstory appeared on Hacker News and then the article appeared on Hacker News. And that's, you know, it's a nice bit of amplification. But then, and this came from totally uh, left field, I discovered I'm in the latest version of the ThoughtWorks tech radar, right? Cupid is now a thing to uh, explore or something. No, it's not adopt. It's, I can't remember what it's called, but like the thing where they're saying, we've come, we've become aware of this thing and you might, you know, want to have a look at it. And I'm like, wow, that's probably the shortest time from anything <laughs> certainly I've done to anything that's appeared in the ThoughtWorks tech radar. And, and the, the feedback I've had from Cupid has been universally positive. There's a bunch of, of course, solid programmer, craftsman type who are just rattling pitchforks. But they're the same people who rattled pitchforks when I did the talk with the original, you know, poking the bear talk five years ago. So I'm kind of over them. Um, but, but other than that, no, genuine, there's been a lot of love, a lot of positivity, and I'm super excited about Cupid. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure where it goes. But um, I, what I did do was I unpacked the well, I unpacked the article. It's a five thousand word article. I unpacked it onto its own little website called Cupid.dev. So if you go to Cupid.dev, it's, it lays out all of the properties. And my um, my aspiration at this stage is to start collecting case studies and putting them up on the website as well, so people can see other people using Cupid. And as a tool, as a review construct, as a uh, set of maybe design principles, that kind of thing. And of, and of your social channels, Dan, is, is you more active on Twitter, LinkedIn, on the DanNorth.net website? Where, where, where do our uh, listeners, uh, should, where should they follow you? Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm on Twitter far more than I should be. <laughs> That's my main channel. Like I'm not on Facebook or Instagram or anything. I'm on, I'm on Twitter a lot. Um, I, I occasionally go to LinkedIn, but I, I, I find LinkedIn tends to be where messages go to die for me. So I think I, I use LinkedIn as like a big phone book. 
Um, so Twitter definitely, and DanNorth.net is where I where I um, publish things. But typically, what I'll do is I'll publish something on DanNorth.net, and then I'll tweet about it, and that's how you find out. Brilliant! Look, so many interesting insights. We could have gone on for way longer. <laughs> Congratulations! I'm so sorry, I just I, you, you you just ask good questions, and I'm just on a just, roll. So congratulations! You just established <laughs> our longest ever podcast by a good margin, yeah. I might say. <laughs> wow! <laughs> yeah, you know you can just you can just cut me out, right? Dan, <laughs> it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you very much. Thanks very much indeed. Hey listeners, thank you for joining us in this round of cocktails. Please like and subscribe to check out other episodes of this podcast series. We're also available on your favorite podcast platforms, or you can simply listen in at torocloud.com where you'll find full episode transcripts and show notes. On behalf of the team here at ToroCloud, thank you very much for listening to us today. This has been Kevin Montalbo for Coding Over Cocktails. Cheers! <laughs>